This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. Episode 32, From the God Fight to Georgia Tech. One night years ago, my girls and I were laying on my bed, looking at the ceiling and talking about the day. Aaron was 10, Delaney was six. And Laney said, Dad, I have to tell you a thing. Promise you won't get mad. And she gave me the doe eyes and folded her hands in a mock plead. Oh, geez, Laney, so dramatic, said Aaron. What is it, Lane? I kind of got into a God fight in the cafeteria today. What's a God fight? Well, I asked Courtney if she could come over on Sunday, and she said, no, my family will be in church, of course. And I said, oh, what church do you go to? And she said she didn't know. And she asked what church we go to, and I said, we don't go to church. And she said, don't you believe in God? And I said, no, but I'm still thinking about it. And she said, but you have to go to church, and you have to believe in God. And I said, no, you don't. Different people can believe different things. She had three nearly identical conversations in our first few months in Atlanta. I asked if they were yelling or getting upset with each other. No, she said, we were just talking. Well, then I wouldn't call it a God fight, I said. You were just talking about interesting things. But this time, unlike the others, it continued to actual engagement. And then Courtney said, but if there isn't a God, how did the whole world and trees and people get made so perfect? Ooh, good question, I said. What'd you say? I said, but why did he make the murderers? And the bees with stingers? And the scorpions? So, Courtney had opened with the argument from design. Delaney countered with the problem of evil. Now, I don't know about you, but my kindergarten cafeteria banter did not rise to this level. My other two kids were always mostly indifferent to these questions, but Laney was into it from the beginning. But then I started wondering how the world did get made, she said. Do the scientists know? Now, when I was a kid, I had this conception of the scientists as one big room of serious-looking people in lab coats surrounded by bubbling test tubes. And I think my kids had the same conception of the scientists. When I was nine, I heard that a small portion of the air we breathe is neon gas. And I excitedly realized that that must be how fireflies light up. So I wrote a letter to President Nixon about it, asking him to, in all caps, please tell the scientists.
When Lainey asked how the world was made, I described Big Bang Theory to her. Erin filled in the gaps with what she remembered, that gravity made the stars start burning, for example, and the Earth used to be all lava and it cooled down. Lainey was nodding, but her eyes were distant. Okay, she said at last. But what made the bang happen in the first place? Well, nobody knows for sure, I said. I don't like that, she said. Well, you can become a scientist and help figure it out. And hey, guess what? She's now a physics major in her junior year at Georgia Tech. So, stand by for answers. She kept asking questions and getting answers in the 12 years between the kindergarten god fight and Georgia Tech because she was invested in figuring out what was real. And she was aware all along the way of all the competing hypotheses out there, including religious ones, and the people around her who were deeply invested in those hypotheses. She had to decide something that everyone who cares about this stuff has to decide. What approach should we take to religious beliefs? Do you just leave it all alone, say, live and let live? Coexist without challenge? Or maybe the goal is the elimination of all religious belief. I know a lot of people in that camp. Or something in between. It's an important question. Now, as an atheist and a naturalist, I had to decide this for myself. What should my posture be toward religious beliefs? And how should I try to influence and guide my kids in that same question? My older two mostly shrugged about the collision of worldviews. It helped that even their religious peers were not pushy or extreme, so they rarely found a reason to engage. Delaney engaged mostly because she was interested in it. When she learned in second grade that one of her friends was Hindu, she said, So you believe in the elephant head god? And when her friend said yes, she said, That's so cool. I don't believe any of that. Eventually, she encountered some religious beliefs that weren't cool, that dehumanized people or got in the way of real answers. And that's when she had to decide what her approach would be. I encouraged her, partly by example, to forego both the shrug and the scorched earth. Beliefs motivate actions, so shrugging at genuinely harmful beliefs, that's not a good response. But I think we should also abandon the fantasy that religion will ever be argued or reasoned or forced out of existence. And when someone suggests otherwise, I say three words. Astrology survived Copernicus. Astrology should have been forced out of business in 1543. Among other things, astrology is founded on the necessary condition of an Earth-centered universe. So long as the other planets and constellations of the zodiac were arrayed in reference to an Earthly center, the idea that they somehow determined our personalities and controlled our destinies had at least a snowball's chance of respectability, I guess. 
But with the publication of Copernicus de Revolutionibus in 1543, followed by two centuries of theological arm wrestling, Earth was decisively removed from center court. Now, the fact that astrology has endured several centuries after its central premise was gutted, and that 42% of Americans today think astrology is, quote, at least partially scientific, shows that most people are not poring over facts to be sure that their worldview still holds water. They stick with their beliefs because those beliefs are such a seemingly perfect cure for whatever ails them. Now add to that the fact that a large part of humanity will always lack access to knowledge and security, and I can't avoid the conclusion that religion will always be with us. So I do what I can to encourage the evolution of religious expression and practice toward the less fanatical and intolerant. So how does this influence my parenting? Among other things, I'm raising my kids for what I call engaged coexistence with other worldviews. This posture rejects both the scorched earth fantasy and the I respect all religions fantasy. The trick is to sort out the word respect. Respect for individuals and respect for their ideas are quite different and they have to be separated. People are inherently deserving of respect as human beings, and no one can be faulted for shutting you out if you declare disrespect for their very personhood. Ideas are another matter. I feel too much respect for the word respect to grant it automatically to all ideas. Even if I disagree with it, I can respect an opinion if it's founded on something meaningful like rational argument or repeatable observation. The other person may have interpreted the information differently, but I can still respect the way she's going about it. Suppose, on the other hand, that someone says Elvis and JFK are working at a laundromat in Hoboken. And I ask how they know that, and they say, I saw it in a dream. Now, saying I respect that opinion would render the word respect completely meaningless. I both disagree with it, and I withhold my respect for it. And that's okay. To help with the challenge of respecting the humanity of someone with toxic beliefs, I've encouraged my kids to think about the privilege question. They know they've been lucky to grow up in a home that allowed them to think freely and challenge assumptions around them, to get an education and to feel loved and secure. We are the product of our environment and family and genes and experiences, and it's sobering to realize that if I genuinely switched places with my fundamentalist cousin, if his environment and family and genes and experience had been mine instead, I would hold the same toxic views. I would be as incapable of rising above the mess as he is because I would in fact be him. There's no magic substance or force that would follow me from who I am now to who I would be then. So does that mean I do nothing about the toxic ideas? Hell no. It's not only wrong to grant respect to all ideas, it can be dangerous. 
So I teach my kids to work toward a better, saner world by challenging any and all ideas and inviting the same challenge of their own ideas, explicitly, out loud, no matter what worldview they adopt. That is engaged coexistence. Recognizing that we're going to be sharing this apartment for the long haul and working together to keep each other's feet off the furniture. Hi, it's Dale McGowan. Before I sign off, I want to tell you about another Only Sky podcast, Pin Drop with Anthony Pin, is a podcast celebrating human creativity in the broadest sense. The urge to create something that didn't exist before, whether a book or visual art, music or dance, a new community or a social movement. Anthony's guests in season one include Sasha Sagan, author of For Small Creatures Such As We, modern art curator Valerie Castle Oliver, historian Chris Cameron, filmmaker Jeremiah Kamara, visual artist Jamal Cyrus, hip-hop activist Harry Allen, visual artist Angelbert Matoire, counselor Candace Gorham, theologian Philip Reed Butler, and professor of secular studies Phil Zuckerman. Subscribe to Pin Drop with Anthony Pin wherever you get your podcasts. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers.